Welcome to Discussions for Us, also known as DFU, where I, your host, Ryan Aldana, will be discussing the topic at hand, the war on drugs in mass incarceration. DFU is a podcast solely dedicated to the production of podcast episodes for educational purposes with academic and scholarly research. Today's episode will be split into three main segments to discuss the topic. The segments are labeled The War on Drugs, The Ramifications, and to conclude, The Solutions and Proposals. I look forward to today's discussion, so let us hop right into it. Welcome to the first segment. The first segment is entitled The War on Drugs. In this segment, we'll be discussing two key things. What is the war on drugs, and why should we care? I mean, aren't drugs bad anyways? Well, first things first. What is the war on drugs? The war on drugs is a governmental crackdown on drug dealers and drug users within the United States. It had started under the Richard Nixon administration, but modernized and popularized nationally under the Ronald Reagan administration in 1971. But why should we care? Aren't drugs bad? Well, this common misconception is actually um, actually stems from the war on drugs created by the government. So why should we care? The, the war on drugs has done more harm than it has done to help Americans with drugs. Government crackdown with police brutally arresting and sending people to prisons, specifically marginalized groups, and even more specifically, African-American males in this country to make them felons, make them serve time up to 10, 20, 30 years for owning a personal possession of marijuana to then release them from prison when they do um, serve their time and then exclude them from society simply because they owned a personal stash of drugs. So instead of getting these people help, getting these people education, rehabilitation, we send them to prison, strip them of their rights, strip them of their humanity. And then when we wonder, why is crime so high within the United States? You can't expect to be you can't expect people to be human if you don't treat them to be human. So today, in the second segment, we'll be discussing more upon the ramifications of the war on drugs. I'm excited to see you in the second segment. I'll see you there. Welcome to the second segment. The second segment is entitled The Ramifications. In this segment, we'll be discussing the ramifications of the war on drugs and how it has targeted marginalized groups in this country, more specifically African-American males. But first, we must discuss what the celebratory tradition is. The celebratory tradition was coined by the author Paul Butler. Butler is the author of 100 Years of Race and Crime. In his article, he talks and opens with um, the progress we have made in this country to enfranchise and give rights to African-Americans since 1910 to 2010. Paul Butler, an African-American lawyer, states um, first off in 1910 
describing the lynchings, the formation of the uh, NAACP to the first African-American president a century later. We have made great progress. Many Americans can agree. I, I, I assure you, um, trust me, I, I honestly think that what we have done now relatively is much better than what things were in the time of the 50s. Um, I'd say as much as the 60s. But what is the celebratory tradition? Well, according to Paul Butler, it is a mindset that Americans have that we have overcome all the issues surrounding race and discrimination from the government. We celebrate that we have overcome these things. For example, the abolition of slavery, we celebrate. Jim Crow laws, we got rid of it, we celebrate. We think we are finished. We think that that was the end of racial discrimination by the government and it's done. Paul Butler also states something called colorblindness. Colorblindness in terms of government policy and laws is this idea that the government and the laws currently enacted are blind in the sense of it affects Americans the same way no matter who the um, offender is, whether they're white, whether they're black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. It's colorblind. We celebrate. We have made progress. However, Paul Butler, in his article, also quotes Kimberly Crenshaw. She states that there are two types of racial progress, material and symbolic. So, which of the two have we made progress on? The answer would be symbolic progress. Although we have gone rid of those signs that have said no more or, or no African Americans allowed during the um, Jim Crow South, that is a symbol and we got rid of it. That is symbolic of progress, allowing enfranchisement and rights to African Americans. But what is material progress in, in regards to racial progress? Material progress is allowing different races to the same and equal access of opportunities of that of white Americans. So how much material progress we have, have we made? Hardly any. So what about some examples? African Americans are not as likely to get health care. That's an example compared to that of white Americans. Hmm. It's a statistic. There's no law saying, oh, African Americans, we're going to deny them the right to health care. Not all of them, some of them. So everyone has access to health care. 
it's not illegal for specific races to use and access healthcare. But although we are past that symbolic and we um, sim symbolic progress, we celebrate and think we have allowed access and opportunity for everyone. When it is very not true, the same thing could be done for housing. African Americans struggle with redlining, all because white Americans refused, refused to live with African Americans. And because of that, they struggle to find good houses in the suburbs or good houses within the cities or, or, or good um, rooms, I should say, within cities because some, some rooms are more expensive than others and their credit is unfortunately bad, all because of redlining. It's not a law saying that they can't get these places, but there's a little bit of a pattern here, don't you see? So what does this have to do with the war on drugs? Well, I'd say the war on drugs is the new Jim Crow, similar to that of slavery and similar to that of Jim Crow laws and, and the policies. So what do I mean by this? The drug war has created a disproportionate rate of incarceration from the consumption of different drugs. And although races typically share the same consumption rate, if not higher among white Americans, black Americans are incarcerated at a higher rate at a higher rate, despite slightly, slightly having uh, and using drugs less than white Americans. So this government crackdown, I say. The war, the, uh, the war on drugs is what I stated in the beginning, a crackdown on drug users and dealers from the government. Why would they do this? They wanted to use this as a moment to specifically target African-Americans once more. Yes, we have made progress since the Jim Crow era. But now, we are sending African-Americans to prison because they use in weed? Or they have a personal stash of it? Okay, yes, they serve a sentence in prison. Big deal. They shouldn't have used drugs. Let's talk about it. Do you really think it's just a big deal? No, it is more than just a big deal. In fact, want to know why? Let's talk about it. First, private prisons are ruthless. First, you get your sentence. Now, if you're an African-American male and you get sentenced for drug use, you would actually probably get roughly anywhere between 10 to 30 years. Okay, it's not a life sentence. Yes, yes, I get it. But you know what that means? 
You have to serve between 10 to 30 years just for personal use of drugs. You're not even addicted. You just used it. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. And then, because you're considered a felon, once you're released, you're disenfranchised. What does this mean? You lose your right to vote. Yes, you lose your right to vote. Why exactly is this an issue? There are more people, more African Americans, who can't vote because they were disenfranchised than after the Civil War when they were granted the right to vote. That's a lot of citizens that do not have the right to vote simply because the government couldn't provide better access to resources, better access to rehabilitative services. But no, the war on drugs has to be a fierce, militarized police force that goes out and seeks these criminals for using drugs. We really sent them to prison just to serve time and then lose their right to vote after they're done? Unfortunately, that is only one of the reasons why the war on drugs has been such a problem. Because many Americans actually use drugs. In fact, 70 million Americans, um, according to a, um, a study uh, conducted in 1999, 70 million Americans have admitted to using drugs. Now, some stopped, some continued. But of those 70 million, only 10%, oh, no, not even 10%, less than 5% are addicted. There is actually a higher addiction rate to um, alcohol than there is for drugs. But we haven't banned drugs. Not at all. No. I mean, we haven't banned alcohol. So what does this say about our... You know, um, it's it's an addictive too. I mean, it kills people as well, but we haven't banned it. And this comes down to prisons, private prisons actually, need an excuse to lock people up. But why would private prisons want inmates? Well, one, they get paid every time they have an inmate. The more inmates they have, the more they get paid for, for housing inmates. Two, when we abolished slavery, it's kind of hard to believe, but we didn't abolish slavery. Yeah, um, the truth about that is that we abolished slavery except in prisons. So what does this mean? If you are arrested, you can be put and you can get employed in the prison system to force um, to construct, um, let's say, license plates. That's common. Um, textiles, um, letters, uh, much more. You can um, obviously there are specific um, jobs for prisoners that they can commit to, but their labor 
is only compensated for roughly 70 cents at best an hour. An hour. You know how much money that is in a year? Because the prisoners get low work times and schedules, because a lot of other prisoners want to get a chance to make money, this is roughly $960 a year in prison. But it's the same work and the same labor that someone not, that a non-felon could do and get paid full price for. What I'm saying is, we are, are using slavery in prisons. And the worst part of, of all of it, most prisoners are in there for simply using drugs. And most of those drug users are African Americans. Do you see where I'm going with this? I'm saying that we have put so many African Americans in the prison system, and we're making them do labor for little to no pay. That's just slavery again, but made legal. And no one's talking about this. No one. Think about it. We think we have gone rid of those policies. Now, uh, police officers and many Americans, um, according to Cooper, uh, Frank Rudy Cooper, author of We Are Always Already Imprisoned, Hyper-Incarceration in Black Male Identity Performance, um, he believes that the war on drugs normalized mass incarceration of black Americans, meaning we. Um, the worst part is that many Americans believe that's just what normally happens with African Americans, with no skepticism of why a specific demographic is being widely thrown in the prison system. No skepticism whatsoever. Now, with the slave labor, what? Who do we put in prison? Okay, let's let's um, let's backtrack. Many prisoners were violent criminals, meaning they probably had. Um, probably homicide, they probably um, assault, battery. They did something that actually harmed the rights, harmed the civil liberties, and harmed the health, potentially, of another person. Yes. Okay, they're in prison. But the number one leading thing right now for prison is drug use. And in some states, roughly 10 states, 90% of those offenders of drug use and drug possession are African Americans. 90% despite roughly the same rate of consumption between African Americans and white Americans. The same rate. So, now we have 2 million 
felons, too many, uh, two million incarcerated crim- uh, inmates. Don't think that's large. Let's put it into perspective. If you were to take that entire population, right, put it, put all the inmates in their own state, got rid of everyone else, it would rank the 35th most populous state in the United States. That is surpassing Nevada. Wow. In fact, although the United States makes up for 3% of the world's population, it makes up for 25% of the world's prisoner population. That's, I don't know, but something seems a little off. So, back to violent criminals and drug offenders and those who possess drugs. Instead of giving them rehabilitation programs, services, sending medical experts to go deal with them, we immediately keep sending and funneling money into this prison industrial complex that is just going to give to their police officers to militarize and then keep assaulting African-Americans for possession of drugs. When we can simply just invest that same money being sent to law enforcement into rehabilitative programs, you think it's that easy, right? It is. But for politicians, it's not. It is really not. Because there, to maintain power, they have to make sure people are incarcerated. They have to make sure African Americans are incarcerated into these private prisons. Because those same prisons lobby politicians. When they lobby the politicians, the politicians get the money. And with that money, they use to um, draft bills. Those bills provide power for the prisons, which only gives more money to the politicians, which allows them to stay in power. It is a cycle. It never ends. So they kind of need people to go to prison. So that's why when people say rehabilitative services are too expensive, no, they're, they're really not. In fact, we could just use that same money we're giving to prisons, take all of those supposed felons and sick criminals for using drugs, take that same money, invest it in rehabilitative programs, services, invest it in medical experts, invest it in so much more. We don't have to send these people to go and lose their right to vote and then put them under slave labor just because they wanted to try drugs. Okay. You probably get the main idea, but maybe you're not African-American. Maybe you are a Hispanic kid. Well, you're not off the hook either. Let's um, let's talk about schools. Schools have actually been another branch of the war on drugs. 
This example can be seen in staff members being allowed to randomly check students in terms of suspicion. But wait, 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 drugs are bad and we don't want our kids to have them. Well, guess what? The war on drugs criminalized drugs. What this means is drugs have to be sold on the black market. And when drugs are sold on the black market, their price skyrockets. Cocaine is actually, it takes a dollar to produce, but is worth $100 for a small gram. So you would see why a lot of young Americans and a lot of um, African Americans are resorting to um, drug dealing, are resorting to um, using drugs and possessing drugs. Because we've inflated, the government has inflated the price of drugs to begin with. Criminalizing it. When what we have not learned anything from the Prohibition Act that originally banned al alcohol, it didn't stop drugs. It just made the, it didn't stop alcohol. I mean, it just made them more valuable. That's why the mafia started. But in other countries, such as Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and Italy, they have decriminalized their drugs. They have re rehabilitative services specifically for drug users. They let their people know that here are the drugs. Instead of trying to control if people can or cannot use drugs, they control the flow from reaching kids. It is legal to sell there. They, they know that if they decriminalize it, people can use it. Because of that, there is actually less addicts um, per capita, um, contrary to belief, in European countries than in the United States, where it's decriminalized. Decriminalizing it does not lower addiction rates. It does not lower rates consumed among kids. And the United States knows this, but they need people to think this because then it just cre keeps feeding into that cycle of people being sent to prison, people losing the right to vote, keeping those politicians in power, the private prisons making money, and then lobbying those same politicians to give them more power. We have the solutions. We have the answers. It has been done in other countries. But politicians in private prisons are scared. Scared of people understanding the issues. So yes, if we were to actually not ban um, or if we were to decriminalize drugs, allow the sale of, let's say, marijuana, not only would it, you know, like rise from the black market, it would actually be taxable and the government would be making money off of that. But guess what? They don't want to do that because private corporations don't have an exploit or a monopoly on marijuana. Contrary to belief. They know that if a lot of small businesses just sell marijuana, they're not going to get any fun on it. 
they have access to all these other things, such as Disney controlling all these different news channels, um, networks, and everything. Um, catalog being owning pretty much every serial, and so on. But marijuana? No. It's in the black market right now. And they don't want politicians making it legal or decriminalizing it or allowing it for sale because they won't get the fun for it. It'll be other people. It is a cycle. Everything feeds into each other. We are not past slavery. We are not past discrimination. So yes, why send labor and jobs overseas when you could keep them home for free just by sending people to prison and then forcing them to work and make things within the prisons for free, nearly for free. It's cheap. You have a large population. Just keep on sending them to prison. But let's say you're not a young Hispanic kid. What does this mean for you? Well, if you're an American, let's talk about it again. Drugs. There was a case. It was actually one of my um, favorite parts about um, conducting the research. It was a Supreme Court case that ruled, um, it, it was called Smith v. Oregon, and it was between um, the Supreme Court having to rule if Native Americans could use peyote, a drug, for religious purposes. The Supreme Court ruled no against it. Your freedom of religion, where you can't be arrested for your what you believe in was ruled against because um well, well a specific group or a specific religion was ruled against despite the constitution just because their practice in involved a drug you know how dangerous that is you don't want the government having that sort of power over what you believe in or what you enjoy or what you just you really don't want the government to having that sort of power. But guess what? The United States has created a caste system. The government has used the war on drugs as a tool to keep power at the top and keep those at the bottom. We don't want people who um, who use drugs to to um, suddenly realize that they're being played by our politicians because things like civil rights protests start happening. But people are so caught up in work, school, they're so caught up in the, in the politicians arguing about things that won't even matter within a few years. This is all to distract you from the real issues that lie within the United States. We think drugs are bad. And yes, for children, yes, it is. But you shouldn't have to lose your right to vote. You shouldn't have to endure slavery just because you owned a drug or, or sold it. Keep in mind, those who do drugs don't even end up addicted. When you decriminalize drugs, 
you you educate them. You don't just say, here, all drugs are free. No. You say, this is the issues with drugs. This is, um, we're going to, we will allow you to take the drug. If you enjoy it, feel free to use it. Don't get addicted to it. Here are rehabilitative services. We're not going to incarcerate you for it. But mass incarceration is what fuels the system. And the war on uh, drugs is more like a war on the people. In the third segment, we'll be discussing the solutions to the uh, war on drugs, how we can solve things such as slavery, how can we solve things such as private prisons, and how we can bring an end to all of this. I'll see you in the third segment. Welcome to the third and final segment on this podcast. The third segment is entitled The Solutions and Proposals. In this segment, we'll be discussing the different solutions that we as citizens can propose can propose to those currently in power and get people in power that would like to make change for this country and how to stop the war on drugs. Let's get into it. So the first proposal, according to the five theses on mass incarceration, is to repoliticize mass incarceration. So since the start of the war on drugs, which started in 1971 under the Ronald Reagan administration, that was done. They got the point that drugs needed to be cracked down on. They did it. They implemented the um, government crackdowns. They sent people to prison. And then they never talked about it again. Yes, in schools you hear, don't do drugs, Red Ribbon Week, all these different things. But since then, you don't really hear the war on drugs when it comes to politicians debating or talking. You don't really hear about um, ending the war on drugs. Not anymore. Um, Typically, you hear things such as police brutality, which was a hot topic in 2020, um, starting in late of May of 2020. And yes, that is important and currently relevant to today's topic. And in fact, that was actually the first time we have repoliticized mass incarceration. Yes, it was about police brutality, especially towards African Americans. But that is a step towards um, mass incarceration of African Americans in this country, which, believe me, is a lot a lot of African Americans who, who have um, possession of drugs, were put in prison and are currently being exploited by private prisons and the government to produce goods and make money to help politicians stay in power. So, repoliticize mass incarceration. What does this mean? We need to frame mass incarceration as a big deal. We need people to understand it's an issue. We need people to see the reasons why they should be involved. And right now, not many people are aware of such things. Because of that, there's been hardly little to no movements or large movements currently that are pushing for this, the end of the war on drugs. Yes, we have made significant progress. In the 2020 election, Oregon is the first state to decriminalize 
all drugs. That is a huge step, a huge, huge step. In fact, right now, currently, as of recording this podcast on December 15th, 2020, the Senate and Congress are currently um, in the midst of pushing for the legalization of marijuana. In fact, I'd say the biggest winner of the 2020 election is legalizing cannabis. Yes, legalizing is one thing, decriminalizing is another. It's great to legalize, and honestly, cannabis is a step. But decriminalization of all drugs, like an organ, is where we need to be. People shouldn't be sent to prison for possession of a drug or using it. What should happen is if they get addicted to it, they should be sent to a rehabilitative program or be sent um, with the medical expert. They shouldn't be stripped of their rights. They shouldn't be, um, be dehumanized because when that happens, only more crime is created, which then is a cycle and it just falls and feeds into the government and the prison industrial complex. But we've already talked about that. Let us get and move along with more solutions. So the struggle against mass incarceration, this is thesis number two, according to Alessandro um, Giorgi, um, author of the essay on the five theses of mass incarceration. His second uh, thesis is the struggle against mass incarceration is a struggle against social inequality. Right now, social inequality is huge. And although we have colorblind as Butler stated in his article, we have colorblind policies. It is still a lot and a lot of bias and um, prejudice and discrimination towards specific marginalized groups. Uh, as author, as an author stated, incarceration mass incarceration of African Americans has been normalized. So much so that we really assume that maybe a African American has drugs in his vehicle. And actually, so much so that African Americans currently have, African American motorists actually have the highest rate of being pulled over by police officers to be checked if they are currently in possession of any drugs, whether it be marijuana, cocaine, um, heroin, and so on. Despite, like I said, consuming at the same rate of white Americans. So the struggle against mass incarceration is a struggle against social inequality. We have to make sure that we show that humans are not... In, um, that different races are not inherently evil. In fact, they commit the same amount of they're only they only resort to committing crime when there's incentive. And because drugs are not a crime or infringing on anyone's civil liberties, we have to decriminalize it and give them other um alternatives such as rehabilitation. We don't have to strip them of their rights. So that is thesis number two. Thesis number three is 
The struggle against the penal state is a struggle against privatization. Yes. We have gone so far as a country, we have commodified housing prison inmates. Yes, that is terrible. Um, the fact that technically prisons own you now <laughs> sounds very familiar to that of slavery. In fact, I would say that private prisons having a lot of African-Americans, uh, African-American males for possession of drugs or um, selling of drugs to make goods for little to no money is similar to that of a plantation during the slave era. When I say slave era now, it just makes me sick because I'm not sure if I'm referring to that of the slave era in the 1800s or the slave era that we are currently enduring right now. Private prisons are just plantations. What can be reminiscent of plantations, to say the least. So yes, we have to make sure that we get rid of privatization of the criminal justice system and prisons. No prisons should be able to make a profit over someone who has committed a crime that is both very, very close to that of just straight slavery. I mean, making a profit over a person is like pretty much just owning them. But the fact that is disproportionately attacking African-Americans, that's just the second Jim Crow. This, the fourth thesis, according to Alessandro, is... No end to penal state without a radical reform of policing. Yes. So in um, just recently in the 2020 election, um, there were two candidates, uh, incumbent uh, President uh, Joe, uh, Donald Trump, who was who believed that the best thing for the uh, prison, I mean, policemen would be to fund them more, not to defund them. And candidate Vice President Joe Biden believed that defunding the police was a terrible idea. Keep in mind, both parties, both Republican and Democrat, both serve corporatist, um, um, corporatist um, ideas and motives and interests. So, of course, none of them want to defund the police when the police and the justice system are currently churning out um, millions and millions of dollars for the government in private prisons because they know that a radical reform on policing is also a radical reform on the private prison system. So, uh, Vice President uh, Joe Biden um, offered, we need to do a new form of uh, policing. Um, this is important because looking forward in the future, um, this is how things will probably be imp implemented where policing is going to be more communal, uh, community-based, where the police officers get to know you, where police officers are not just these scary boogeymen that come and um, brutally 
um, attack you while arresting you. Now, that's a step and an upgrade from what we originally had. However, it still serves in the interest of corporatists and private prisons. So yes, we don't just need reform of policing. We need radical reform. And some may say revolution. Now, the difference between reform and revolution is reform calls for a change to a system as revolution calls for the um, uh, reform slightly alters the system as revolution changes the system as a whole. And lastly, thesis number five, and this is the fifth and final proposal that we can do as citizens. And it is to get those who are currently in power out of there. Vote. We have the right to vote, all of us. That is a huge step from the antebellum South. That is a huge step from the Jim Crow um, implemented South. We need to use that right to vote. We need to get educated. We need to educate others. And we need to realize who we're voting for, their interests, and where their interests lie. Joe Biden is a Democrat. Donald Trump is a Republican. Both of them serve corporatist interests. They don't seek to reform the prison system because it benefits them. So, when using your right to vote, it is your strongest tool. The prison, very much like how uh, the war on drugs was a powerful tool for the government, your right to vote is the strongest tool against the government. However, some people are fooled into voting for those who continue to serve the interests of corporations in private prisons. So it all comes down to education, understanding, and carrying out your civil duty as an American citizen to vote for those who represent you the most and best. Thank you for coming to this podcast. I'll meet you in the next and concluding segment of this podcast episode, and I hope to see you there. Thank you. So that is going to do it for today's discussion for us, also known as DFU, where I, your host, Ryan Aldana, has concluded the discussion on the war on drugs and mass incarceration. I want to thank you for your time and for all of the willingness you put into listening to this podcast episode. Mass incarceration and the war on drugs is more like a war on the people. It fuels and keeps people in power. Not the people like you and I, but the people who are wealthy and the people who don't look like the average American citizen. It is important that we as Americans understand where our interests lie and put those same interests in the people we vote for. We have made significant progress since the Civil War 
since the abolition of slavery, since the civil rights protests, since the ending of Jim Crow laws. And now in 2020, we are still fighting for equality and the end to racial discrimination. We are finding to end these things. When Martin Luther King had a dream that one day little white kids and little black kids would get along, I'm assuming he didn't see it and expect it in this way. I am excited to see the direction this country goes in. For I myself have been inspired by the movements all across the world this year. They have created different emotions among different people. Some people saw them as threatening. Some people, very much like myself, saw them as motivating. If it weren't for those same protests, I probably would not have done this topic. Probably would have done something like the discrimination towards the LGBTQ community. But it's that same action taken by millions of Americans to make change for this country. Those who understand where the issues lie and want to fix them that create the biggest impact on this country. I am your host, Ryan Aldana, and I want to thank you for coming on to Discussions for Us first episode, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.